everybody. Welcome back to The Undiscovered You, a podcast for people who feel like they have so much more to offer, but are somehow stuck where they are. I'm your host, Kimberly Johnston, and this season, we'll be speaking to the dream catchers. These are people who went after their dream jobs and got them. Today, I'm extremely excited to have with me Ian Roberts. So Ian's based out of LA, and he's a professional artist. For 25 years, he taught plein air painting in the US and across Europe, and now he's doing it online and has reinvented himself in an incredible way. Ian, it's so good to have you on the show. It's lovely to be here, Kimber. So Ian, I'd love to just introduce you to our, our listeners. So could you tell me a little bit about sort of where you were born, where you grew up, where you studied art and how you got interested in art? So the, the, the thing that's so kind of fundamental, I think, is my father was a painter. And, you know, I remember being at uh, art college. I went to the Ontario College of Art, which if you're in Canada is, you know, it's in Toronto. I grew up in Toronto. Um, I'm Canadian. Um, but my dad was a painter and a lot of his best friends were painters and they earned a living as painters. And I remember in my second or third year of art school going to the guidance people and talking about, you know, well, I wanted to paint. And they just looked at me like, well, you can't earn a living as a painter. And I'm like, what are you talking about? My dad does it. His friends do it. You can do it. I think I knew I think I knew I wanted to be a painter from the time I was nine or 10 years old. Wow. It was oil paint. It was like something about it. It was oil paint. I wanted to be a painter. I just knew it. And, you know, I, I actually spent a number of years. I went to art school for a little bit about 19 when I was 19 and 20. And then I went actually spent a number of years sort of in a meditation process, hmm. a meditate, long meditation course that went on for several years. And I taught meditation and so on. And I look back at that because I was a pretty scrambled kid. In addition to being an artist, I was pretty scrambled. And I look at that as being this thing that settled my awareness and clarified it so that I kind of had a good foundation to build off of. Mm. And then I went to art college, Ontario College of Art for four years. The last year, uh, they took 25 students to Florence and they, you know, I was one of the ones accepted. And that was pivotal somehow the depth the the Florence is such an amazing city the history of of everything there and then when you're there for a year and I remember I used to go every week to the drawing cabinets and they had like 300 old master drawings and you could just hold them and copy them you know and it was so rich that experience I think I came away just realizing both in terms of a desire in terms of intellectually this is really what I wanted to do and I, I just started painting. I can't say that I was doing great. I, my paintings, you know, you still muddle around for a long time trying to figure out. But landscape always made a, sen- made a lot of sense to me. There was a lot of strength in landscape uh, in Canada. We had sort of a big traditional landscape. And then that sort of led to, uh, you know how sometimes in life, one thing leads to another and you never could have imagined. But it was like that. Some friends of mine bought a facility in the south of France. They made it into a facility where you could bring 10 people. And I was teaching drawing up on a farm north. We had a farm north of Toronto. My dad had just passed away. 
And I was teaching drawing because I didn't know what else to do to earn a living. And I was living with my stepmother. And I just said to them one day, who wants to go to Provence? And like 10 people put up their hand. And so I thought, okay, well, that'll work. And I did it. And I realized, okay, I figured the money out. And I realized, actually, you could make a fair amount of money doing this. To me, it seemed like a fair amount of money. And so when I got home, I made up this little sort of package that I put some ads in the, in the two major magazines in the US that would be the place to go. And bang, it was like 800 people asked for information. Wow. And I never looked back. It was just the luck of the gods. It was unbelievable. And so I went to that one facility for four or five years and then, you know, went to, I don't know, Lake Como and Tus Tuscany and then some, then settled on Provence. And it allowed me in about two months to make enough money to live on for the rest of the year. But you see, there's where I was single. I had a beat up old four wheel drive truck that we paid for. <laughs> I had a pretty small apartment that was based on the room that I could use as a studio. And so it's like to your point before, I made a lot of sacrifices where every that you could just see everyone else had a goal in mind and it was money or family or whatever it might be. And it immediately dictated all the steps thereafter, because once you had the mortgage, once you had the car payments, once you had the kids in school, everything was, well, not everything's dictated, but it sure dictates a lot. And then the desire to leave that is, you know, hugely scary, really, or could be. So I basically just did that. You know, I had girlfriends, I had sort of, I had a life, but it wasn't, I made decisions to just not get, I'll use the word entrapped, but I don't mean it like all those things are bad. Mm. I just meant I knew what I wanted and I wanted to keep doing it. Um, but then I, I met my wife, my wife's a painter in LA a long, long time ago. And through a number of very convoluted things, I ended up back in LA and we got married. That's why I'm in LA. And I kept teaching these workshops and she made the comment because I used to van drive the vans on the workshops that if you ever roll one of those vans, even though everybody signed this disclosure, because we had a house, right? We had mortgage, but we had a house. We had certain assets. It's like, we're in trouble. Yeah. And so she just said, it's just not worth it. So I quit and I realized, well, I could instead do online courses. Mm. And I thought, okay, I've been teaching for this long. I know what to say. I'll do the online courses. My wife called me analog, man. I didn't even own a phone. <laughs> I still don't really have a phone. I could probably count the number of texts I've sent in my life as 20. <laughs> and they're always answered. I never, I never initiate it. And my wife still calls me and she hears the phone ringing in the other room and I've left the phone. I never carry the phone. So it, the whole tech feature of making this work mm. was a nightmare of a learning curve. But all I can say is I piloted the programs. I did the programs. I launched it. And it just, well, it, it's been in the three years since that happened, I launched the first program right at the, like April, 2020, right when COVID was hitting. So wow. it was just unbelievable. 
And I had a YouTube channel. I'd never taken a video before. I've got 120,000 subscribers on YouTube now. Sometimes 200,000 people will watch the videos. And when I launched the courses last uh, winter, I had, I had uh, over 800 people sign up. It was an unbelievable experience. And let me just ask you, I want to go back a bit. I just, your story is incredible. And I love the fact that you sort of, it was almost like intuition where you're like, who wants to go? And, and then you just ended up with this course that you just ran for 25 years. And I guess the question is, you said, you know, people seem to have this goal in mind and they're kind of looking at that goal. And then you went on to say, I know what I wanted. What did you want? Well, this gets into actually sort of something that's, that has happened since I've been teaching the online courses. But there was, like I said, it was a, this desire to oil paint. Mm. It was, I mean, it seems weird to say I want to oil paint. It's not even that I want to be an artist in some way that is, I'm not sure yet what it is. It's just, I like oil paint. I like the feel of oil paint and I'm a representational painter, right? So you know what it is I'm painting. You know, I'm skillful enough that you can see what it is. Within that arena in today's world, um, there's still a lot of room for different possibilities, but it's always been contained there. There's no, I mean, why do I have that? Why do people have this desire to do what they want to do? I mean, it's, it, there's really no logic to it. You can question it, but there's no logic to it. Mm. And you can accept it and you can certainly reject it because there's no logic to it. But it is fundamentally a resonance that you experience. And I think you avoid it at your peril. Mm. I mean, how you make sense of that oil painting, in my case, it's, it's like you just have to create the time. You just have to create the time and the space because my experience of creativity is that it takes a lot of space, mental space to be entertaining things. It's almost like potter, pottering around in the studio is a part of the process of doing the work, even though functionally it's not very useful. So, you know, when, when you talk about a dream is the idea that you want to put use oil paint, is it a dream? I don't know. It's just something that viscerally is alive in me that I, I've never lost. I've always known it's there. There's been periods of time when, like in my 20s, when I didn't paint very much because I was doing that meditation thing. But on the whole, it's just a visceral reality. And it never goes away. And in some ways, that's lucky. And in other ways, it's sort of a curse, I suppose, because there's all, there's all these other things you can maybe do with your life. But this is the one that I keep being connected to. Um, you know, and I mean, there's within that, there's a lot of those things that you read, there's things that you write, you know, there's a couple of books I've written. And then, of course, these online courses, they're all connected to that. They're all stitched. It's like a cottage industry that started off with, I don't know, weaving or something and the whole thing sort of like, you know, like you would have in, 
in, in uh, a little village where somebody's got a cottage industry of some kind. And it's like, it just sort of grows and grows and grows, but it all just starts off as one little fundamental thing. And what I find really interesting about this is I think a lot of people have that burning desire to do something within them. So they love to sing, they love to write music, they love to paint, they love to sculpt, they love to dance, they love to, and it's exactly the same thing. And I find it ironic that you're at an art college and you go and speak to the counselors and they tell you that there's no money or future shocking, in being an artist. Definitely. Shocking. You have to we teach. We just want your well, money, exactly. That's right, you just have to teach, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, I mean, I earned a living from the sale of my paintings for almost a decade. Mm. But I can tell you, I, that was before I did this whole thing with uh, uh, teaching and going to Provence. So that's 20 to, no, 30 to 40 or something that I did that. That was a meager existence. Mm. Because the, you, you don't know when a painting, you've got no control over when someone's gonna buy a painting. I was very fortunate in having a couple of galleries in Toronto that, well, sometimes I'd come down with a, with a number of paintings and they just give me cash. Wow. And, and then they'd sell them afterward because they knew they could sell them. Mm. But I was very lucky. It wasn't sort of a situation. I, and I didn't have to give them frame. They just took them and gave me the cash and I'd go home with $5,000 or something and realize, okay, I'm good for six months or eight months because my existence was pretty simple. Um, but then I pretty quickly realized that teaching, if I'm going to keep this going, I think I need to teach. And that's when I did the Provence things. I didn't do any other. I always realized if I'm going to teach, I'm, because the, the, the thing you find out immediately is if you teach at a, a school or at one of these like sort of plein air schools where you, you're brought in as the teacher, the administration makes the money, not the artist. Not the artist. Yeah. And I realized, okay, if I'm doing this, I'm the administrator and I'm the artist. Mm. And so I did everything. 9-11 happened in the US and people were nervous about flying all of a sudden, right? Yeah. So you realize something could happen and you could have put all this money out in advance mm. and the whole thing could fall apart. So it wasn't without stress, mm. but it certainly worked. And, you know, I got tired of it you know, going to Provence every year and doing the same thing like that. But I, I never, ever met anybody when I described the problem would say, oh, poor you. Going <laughs> 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 to the south of France in the yeah. summer of pain. It was, it was a very good gig. But it made me realize, you know, I mean, I managed to craft it around those two workshops and sometimes three workshops a year. And... But here's the thing about teaching, and this is this sort of gets to sort of the heart of, of, of what I think is happening to me now, anyway, as I've taught these online courses. You sort of have to teach, you sort of have to do what you teach. Mm. So I was teaching plein air painting, outdoor landscape painting, and I was taking people to places that were beautiful so that they could paint that outdoor landscape, and I'd had to do demonstrations so I had to be, have my chops up. I had to be good at it. I couldn't just decide, well, now I'm going to start experimenting with something else. And it kept me contained, I would say, artistically. Okay. And that was frustrating. The mm. teaching frustrated something of that. You say, but you're still getting to paint. 
That's true. You're getting to do what you love and you're getting all these things. That's true. But because of teaching, I found it sort of narrowed the creative range. Mm, interesting. And then when I started the YouTube channel, uh, so I've done 120 episodes, which would be just over two years, I guess. Is that right? 50, yes. you know, two, 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 almost two and a half years. And there I'm do, having to come up with something each month it was every week for a while. So in a way I was, I was painting every week. I was doing a painting every week. And again, you say, oh, you're painting every week, but you're trying to find subjects and everything to organize around particular ideas. And they were really demonstrations of ideas more than paintings. I mean, mm -hmm. some of the paintings are bad. If you saw the paintings, you'd say, oh, those look good. But I mean, from a creative standpoint, uh, in terms of just following wherever your creative juice might go, it again cramped where I could go. Still doing what I want to do. Wouldn't mm. trade for anything else. And so this sort of gets the two things about, um, about sort of actually the actual podcast itself is one that in doing the online courses, the amount of work that I had to do almost buried any creative function. There was just so many emails and so many things since I launched them last, so February of 2022, so now we're in June, so like six months or five months, it's just been an insane amount of work because there were so many students. And that gets me to this idea of Dharma. You know, Dharma is this idea of like your, it's a Sanskrit word, but it's like your calling, really. Mm. What is your calling? And I've been pulled, divided between being an artist and having to teach. Mm. And there's things that are going on now, and I've, it's sort of interesting, the timing of it, that I've just been thinking about the last week of, well, maybe my calling is teaching. Mm. Because I'm, I have hundreds of students, right? And they're all, for the most part, close to or retired people that want to paint, want to express themselves. And a lot of them that went to art school in college or have wanted to do this since they're young. And now I'm giving them, because I think my course actually, it really breaks it down into such fundamental pieces that somebody that takes it realizes, oh, these are the building blocks. I'm getting the building blocks here. Because you can take a course and you know, say, well, we're going to do watercolor today, or oh, we're going to do whatever. And there, there are some functional conventions of how art works, like any, any creative endeavor, right, has functional conventions that allow it to work, that allow you to develop the skills to then give expression. Because the whole thing rests on skills, mm. right? I mean, if you wanted to play something on the piano, but your fingers couldn't do it, you can't express it. So the, it's, it's just, I'm thinking the idea of one, maybe my calling for the time being, for the next five, six, seven, eight years or something like that, is not to resist this teaching thing, but just give into that and just make that the role rather than feeling that I'm divided. 
I mean, I'm going to have to keep painting to do it because that's what I'm teaching, but within that context. And the other thing that I've been thinking about is starting a membership site with the students and then invite people you know, on the email lists and YouTube with really that idea, the idea of an accountability to your creative desire. Because lots of, see, one of the major things that I have in my course is that at the end of the week, they have to post the work. Mm. They have a buddy that critiqued it. And at first, both of them freak, it, freak them out and they think, I'm not gonna do that. But as the weeks go by, they realize, okay, I did post it, nothing happened, no, nobody laughed. And actually giving the critiques and getting their critiques, I'm feeling tentatively not very good at it, but I can see the value. And, and after several months, they really understand the value of it. Mm. And so that idea of just an accountability, uh, uh, you're joining this site, you know, we've got certain things that are going on, a Q&A Zoom call every month or something, but this accountability to why are you here? Why, if you want to paint, if you want to draw, post something every week or month or something, you just make a commitment to doing it. Because our fears, of course, of following that thing that we've been thinking about for so long are enormous. Mm. And one of the fundamental things, I think, is just posting stuff, even when it's garbage, because one of the worst things is a sense of perfectionism. Mm, interesting. Oh, but it's not good enough. I see all the, and the thing that you never understand about artists, and I'm sure it's dance and everything, musicians as well, you don't understand the amount of process and stuff that goes on behind the scenes that leads to that painting that looks so good on the wall. Mm. and the failures and the experiments and all the things that go on behind the scenes. And if you only see the finished thing on the wall, it just feels like stages and steps beyond anything imaginable. Mm -hmm. Where if you saw the sketchbooks and the ideas and the things being generated, you say, oh, I understand a little bit more the process that leads to it. And maybe I wouldn't be so hard on myself because you know, everybody is just insanely hard on themselves. I think I think that's so interesting because when you you speak to anybody that does writing, they say, you know, write every day, write once a week, make sure you continue writing, just hone your craft, even if it's crap, as you say, get something down on paper and just write. And and I also loved that sort of, you know, it's called the the polished turd is what I like to call it. But it's that idea of you start with something and then it becomes something better. And sometimes it's not even great at the end, but perfectionism, if you start and the first time you're like, actually, this is crap and you just get rid of it, you're never going to be able to polish the turd. And right. the, the idea behind what you said about the what's hanging on the wall is the finished product that people see and what they don't see is the process of getting there. I think that's so important for our listeners to recognize in everything they do is when you see a senior partner at a law firm and you're just starting, you feel completely inept. You feel inadequate. You don't, you can't understand why you don't know everything that they know. And it's because they started where you were and you're, you're essentially that notebook with the first sketches in it. And then they are the painting on the wall and you'll get there eventually but right now you're just a sketch in a notebook and allow yourself to be that sketch and allow yourself to develop. And I would say that that's, I think it's just such a profound statement in that we compare ourselves to the painting on the wall. 
we compare ourselves to the person, you know, singing the lead role in whatever play. We compare ourselves to the person who is Adele, like, you know, whatever it is, you compare it, but they have spent hours and hours and hours. Look at golfers, you know, um, Tiger Woods. If you watch the documentary about Tiger Woods, from the time he could walk, he was swinging a club hundreds of thousands of times a day, he swings a club. And that's why he can do what he does when he gets out there in the majors. And it's the same with painting, with artistry, with it. Do you want to dedicate that time? And this is one thing I think is really important to touch on here is to master anything, you have to dedicate the time to it. And I think that's one thing that a lot of people end up stepping away from a dream because it gets monotonous. And, you know, it is, you, it's, it can be, for instance, if you wanted to be a professional golfer and you realize you have to go out there and hit and hit and hit and hit and hit or a tennis player, same thing. Read Andre Agassi's book. Yeah. It's just, yeah. yes, it's just yeah. constant, isn't it? And I think that's one thing. And, and that's sort of the reality. And I love what you're sharing here is kind of the reality behind the dream. And the fact that, yes, you can go out there and you can be a painter and you can live on a meager existence. And if you're happy with that, and if your job, your desire, you know what you want and what you wanted was to work with oil paint in a space and you're able to do that. And that was fulfilling to you. You didn't have a Mercedes Benz in your you know garage. You didn't have a big house. You lived a meager existence, as you called it, you know, in your secondhand four wheel drive. If that is something that brings you joy because you're doing your passion, you're doing what you love, then that's fulfillment. But if your fulfillment is you want to be in society and you want to drive by everybody in your Mercedes and go down the road to your beautiful big house with the pool in the back, you know, probably being an artist is not going to get you there. Teaching online might, but being an artist might not. Yeah. But I mean, the thing is, I mean, there's two parts to that. The best, the best, um, definition of talent I ever heard was Whistler, the painter. Yes. He said, the ability to do hard work in a consistently constructive direction over a long period of time. That's it. It's sort of describing exactly what you were saying there about Tiger Woods or anybody else, that the, the foundation of it is practice. Mm. You know, I mean, so many people say to me, when, when I say I'm an artist, they say, oh, geez, I can't even draw a stick figure. And I say, well, so how good are you at playing uh, like Chopin or something on the piano? And they look at me, well, ridiculous. I can't play that either. Well, I don't, I don't. And they think that somehow an artist is born. Mm. But if you were to take, I mean, piano is a very, very good metaphor for getting good at something because everybody has at least watched somebody go through those initial things as young kids and how it just incrementally improves until if they have over a long period of time consistently constructive direction which would be a good teacher you know mm -hmm. the whole idea of deliberate practice because deliberate practice is that 10,000 hour thing right yes 10,000 really to master 10, anything yeah. i was just gladstone picking a, a, number. a good number yeah but deliberate practice is that you're pushing against you're pushing against something that um, is like sort of has a degree of difficulty and you're mm. choosing the parts that are difficult and keeping focusing on that. Because I remember living with this guy one time, he was a really good guitar player and he played harmonic at the same time. And, you know, he'd play sometimes and he was so, so good to listen to. But when you lived with him, it was a pain because 
he'd just sort of do these little weird bits over and over and it'll be like, can't you just play something? But of course, <laughs> but no, he, he's trying to figure out yeah. how this thing works, you know, and putting it together. So I think that thing of, of you know, you, if you get sidetracked, I mean, here's the thing. I think there's a very, very powerful cultural message that the house and the yeah. fancy car and all those pieces are important and that's what you want. Mm -hmm. And there's all kinds of messages that the quiet, simple uh, things that call to you when you're sort of on your own, those are not important. And I think the culture clearly has a leaning to success as a financial return. Success as a financial return. And so, How do you, how, I mean, I think tons and tons and tons of people go down that road of corporate success and get it, well, it's midlife, midlife crises, right? They realize totally. what in heaven's name is this about and how could I possibly get out of it now? Mm. And of course, there's a percentage of people that realize they can't get out of it. You know, if you buy into it deeply enough, then by the time you realize it, you're probably so deeply in debt, you're never going to get out. And, you know, because now you got a second home and you got to, you know, the vacation and all this stuff. Because I remember someone said to me, he used to do income tax reforms, income tax forms. And he had poor people and he had really rich people. And he said, they're all identical. The amount of money they spend on the home, the amount of money they spend on the vacation, it's all the same percentage. Mm. And they all have no money at all at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> You spend what you've got. <laughs> I thought it was so funny. That's but um, I just think, you know, it, it, your whole thing of this thing of dreams is so intriguing because it's intrigued me all my life of what is the thing that, what is the thing that calls you, your dream? Mm. And how do you listen to it and make it into something that you're going to do? And we've all got it we all have it now some of it some people it's that i want to practice the law because yeah. i can't think of anything that would be more useful to the world i mean you know i'm sure when you practice the law there's all kinds of things in there that are you know difficult to deal with because it's hardly an ideal situation always but you know the, the basic function of it is or a doctor you know i mean there's lots of professions where the calling is not the calling of, oh, I want to be a doctor or a lawyer because that's how you make lots of money. It is truly called to it. And it's magnificent if that's the case. Or nursing, you know? I mean, you look at someone, you think of how we pay nurses and teachers, how we pay teachers. And those are clearly callings too, you know? I couldn't do a lot of those things. It just, it's just not in my nature. And yet you realize that somebody that does is invaluable. And yet maybe they're not being paid enough to allow it to even have the dream to become, to be felt as real, right? The dream isn't felt as real because, um, you know, if you get ground out, no dream feels like a dream anymore, right? But I mean, normally when we think of it, we think of, I think of, of creative dreams, mm. of unusual, maybe even quirky dreams that people, 
people dismiss because it seems it's quirky, but who knows? And the world is probably, certainly in the last you know, 20, 30 years or something seems to be populated more and more with quirky people doing unusual things and managing to make it work. Yeah. Somehow. That's the internet has been amazing for that. Like people being able to start small businesses or taking passions and actually you end up with a much bigger marketplace than you ever had before. You met, you know, if for instance, your online courses, you're reaching people all over the world who are able to access something that, you know, if you were just doing it in LA, you would have a finite amount of people that you could actually hit. Yeah. I want to just go back to something you said, because I think, I think this is a really interesting concept and a construct that we all have in our minds that I think is a fallacy. And that's once you get on the train and you're barreling straight ahead and you've got the, you know, you've got the mountain house, you've got the beach house, you've got the huge mansion, you got the big car, the kids are in private school, that you're stuck and you can't get off the train and you have to. So we use the words, I have to keep going. I can't change. I have too many things. I have too many responsibilities. You can sell the houses. You can downsize you can get the kids out of private school and stick them in an amazing public school education. It is hard. It is not something that's easy to step into. It's not easy to row back, but there is an option there. And I think that's one thing, you know, we've talked about that in terms of following dreams within our family alone is, you know, I left law and I went and started my own business. And that is a huge chunk of cash out, out the door for us. And when we made that decision, one of the things we said is, if this doesn't work out, you know, would you go back? And to be honest, the answer is no, but we can always downsize. We can always have that option of downsizing. Now, I, I will say, obviously, if there are people that are living paycheck to paycheck and barely putting food on the table, it's a different situation. But the people that have bought into that, quote unquote, American dream of, you know, more, 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 I need, I need more you can row that back and change your life if you do some sacrifices and sell some stuff. No, it's absolutely true. But I mean, it's, it's the very illusion that heads you down that road. Yes. Still plays in your head. Like all my friends are at the, at the country club. All my friends are at the beach house. All my, it's like, you're not just giving up the house. Exactly. You're potentially giving up all these friendships of all these people that have like-minded holidays and cars and discussion topics, and you're doing what? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden you're out of your mind. Yep. And so I think there's a lot of fear around it because it's not just giving up the material stuff. I think if, I think if you could just realize that, oh, there's the house I'd live in and there's the school they'd go to and my wife wouldn't freak out because you know, she wants it or something. She's on board. She's willing to make the change. Everything's going along fine. It that isn't the only thing that changes. Mm. And I think I think I think the investment once you get in there, sometimes um, that's I think it, it can be frightening. But then you say, but then you say, well, if, if I can't make a decision like that and these people reject me for that decision, then what exactly is Why French am I friends with them? Why am I friends with them? Exactly. So for I status. Mean, you, are you friends you with them for status? Or are you friends with them because you like them and you like their input into your life? <laughs> right, right. And that, that, so I just saying it, it's like, it, it's not just the stuff. Agreed, it's a whole agreed. Set of things I think that's really smart to, to point be, out. 
And I think it's terrifying. I mean, mm. rightly terrifying. No, totally terrifying. But it is possible. This is my point. Oh, it is absolutely, absolutely possible. And I think there are many, many repercussions, as you say, and you won't feel them all until you actually do it. Even in the times where you think you've thought of them, all of a sudden yeah. you'll realize, oh, wow, we've been completely. One of the things that was very interesting to me after, after leaving law is I don't get invited to the networking events anymore. Because of the why, why they don't need me there. And I got invited to one recently and I was so excited because I used to turn them down because I was like, I can't do any more networking events. But I got so excited by being invited and included in one. I was like, yes, I'll be there. But that's the type of thing you, I, I had not even thought about that. And it's right. it, there, there are, of course, there's lots that's wrapped up in it. But I think the point is, is you can do it. And if your happiness, if your health, if your family, if your well-being, if all of those things are right now being torn to bits because you are living a life that is absolutely centered on getting more money, getting the big house, having the fancy life, and actually it's not making you happy, really think about that. I have to keep this up because you don't. There's lots of sacrifices that go along with that, but you need to be following something that's going to make you happy. Well, one of the things, I mean, you obviously had something that you wanted to follow, right? Mm. It wasn't like, I don't want to do law, and then you had to figure it out. I think you probably had something that you had in mind, right? So the idea that this is tearing me apart, or this, you know, it's not going to be healthy, that's, that's a good realization. The question is, what are you going to replace it with if you're not quite sure? Because a lot of us have buried what it is that calling under so for so many years we don't hear it anymore mm. and so how do you take the first steps to figuring out what that is and i think that's an important thing too and you might take some steps thinking oh i think it's you know i want to paint or something and it might not be anything even vaguely like that but it would only be you know, they're quiet to be, you know, I hate the word passion to follow your passion because the myth, the word, the, the root of the word passion is martyr. Yeah. And we don't want to martyr ourselves for goodness sake, right? Mm. So the thing is, my experience is those things are very quiet. Those things, those callings are very quiet and they start off very, very quiet. And if you're just trying to figure out what else maybe could I do, you're going to have to be listening carefully to very quiet and not clear ideas. It's not like, but I have a passion to paint and I have to, it's not like that. It simply isn't, I don't think, for 99% of the people. But there is something there, because I believe everybody's called to do something. But I just think we are all called to something. Mm, and mm. it is generally, I think, a quiet thing that we need to lean into over time. Because just because you're saying, well, you knew you wanted to be a this, but I just don't know what I want to do. It's because you're not really listening enough, I think. And starting off in little steps that might lead, that isn't right, but it might lead to the thing that does because you can't figure out what it else is, what else it is. And I think to not start because I don't have a clear calling to be a basketball player or something, or to, you know, be a guitar player. I mean, those are, might not be the directions anyway, right? Yeah. 
What's really interesting, so what you don't know is that I left law to become an executive coach. So this is what I do is I sit down with people and I help them to discover, you know, what is it you want to do? What are your passions? You know, what are you good at? And a lot of times it's in a corporate context in terms of using your gifts that you have in order to be the best that you can in your job. But I also work with a lot of people who are going through transformation and they want to do something different. And so we talk about, we explore, we do real expansive thinking and I have them write everything down and they're not allowed to edit any of their ideas. So, you know, one of them could be, you know, move to Cornwall and build sandcastles and you are not allowed to edit that. You have to put it down. And it's like, you put all of these things down and then you kind of, and then you start to reality check things. And then you say, we've got the two kids in private school. We've got the Mercedes, we've got the three houses. So we'd have to sell two of them and we'd have to sell the car and we probably have to get the kids, you know, whatever you have to work out, but then you start to reality check it. And as you say, you can start to make those incremental small steps towards whatever that goal is. And the small shifts eventually have you shift completely. If you keep turning a little bit right every single day, you eventually right. have turned completely right. Right. So, I mean, I think that's because I was, I'm just actually reading a book called Love Plus Work by a guy named Marcus Buckingham. Okay. And his point is, uh, he talks about these red threads where you just l- look at the things where you sort of feel you're in flow or where you're, whether you're happy or so on. And it could be completely within the corporate structure, but just finding those threads and finding bosses that are interested that you have those threads and allowing you rather than having, you know, like those productivity things at the end of the quarter and all those assessments and everything, which just completely puts you into a box and isn't necessarily helping you discover the things that you could even be doing in the corporate setting Mm. that would actually make you happy. You don't have to leave necessarily. You know, the the thing of leaving law and starting a coaching business, I mean, that might be like too big a, an ask for some people. Totally. The, the, the desire might not be strong enough, but certainly the idea, the idea of being happier at work, well, everybody I'm sure wants that. Yeah. And that's, and that's one of the things I often talk about when I'm in a corporate is I say, you need to have a sponsor, someone within the organization who, when you make these self-discoveries about what you, what your, what are your fundamental values? What are the things that drive you? You know, what are your energizing strengths? You right. need to have someone internally who can help you shift right. internally to be able to do that. And if you end up hitting brick walls everywhere, then find a different place where you can actually do that. But right try it stay where you are it's not about it's not about just jumping ship and going and trying something new it's about making those shifts in parameters that actually are are a safety net for you and it took me years to actually leave law completely and do the coaching you know i did i did baby steps i shifted to working in inclusion and diversity internally at the bank i shifted out of law i did small shifts and then eventually jumped ship and it was a big jump when i did it it was a big decision to go but i fully agree with that I want to pick up on something because we're, we're coming really close to time and I don't want to let this one go. So you spent a lot of time, you said, um, so you, you kind of, I'm almost seeing your, your life in these really interesting segments in terms of you had a father who was an artist, you fell in love with oil at a very young age, you went off and you studied, um, but you took this time with meditation and then you came back and then you ended up doing the art for a bit where you were sort of hand to mouth doing the art and then you did the teaching and now you're in this next phase of the online. 
So what- Stop. You're... Can you hear him? I can hear him, but he's not, it's not so oh, bad. It's not it's... Okay, fine. Yeah, it's, it's a little- It's internal yeah. here. All right, sorry. <laughs> okay. I think so if I... you, yeah. Yeah. So we've got we've got these different segments and we're at the place where, you know, you're you're now reinventing yourself. And, and one of the things you talked about was, you know, whether or not your dharma is now teaching as opposed to painting. And that shift, I think, was really interesting. But how does I, I, what, what I what I what I I'm, I'm saying a lot of words to get to this question, but you talked about being in the space so you said you know painting isn't just about grabbing a paint grabbing a paintbrush and putting the oil on the canvas you said actually being in that space was an important part of the painting process for you and i want to kind of explore that a little bit for my listeners because i think there's something there that we can translate to other people around being in that space can you just unpack that for me a little bit around that being in the presence being in the space so, so let, let's say I'm doing a YouTube and I need to create a painting for YouTube. Mm. So I can just put something up there. I have the skills to manufacture another painting the way I have in the past. That doesn't take a lot of space. That just takes a skill and repeating the skill. But if I want to start thinking about a new direction, where am I going with this thing in general? And I want to explore some new direction. Maybe it moves towards more abstraction. Maybe it moves towards figures. Maybe, you know, whatever it might be. Um, it's almost like you need to sort of look through books and you need to do some drawings and you need to kind of wander around and none of it is productive mm. in a, okay, I got to get this painting done by 10 o'clock today. It's not productive in that respect but it is very productive in allowing the the quiet things that are that are sort of coming up from within um to surface and be acknowledged and be written down because they almost need to come out of um they need to sort of come out of the ether and get some quiet little sketch. I mean, we've all seen, well, the idea of like, oh, just on the back of a, a napkin, mm. right? That idea that a, an I, it just has sort of come together and, oh, okay. And now we've got something concrete. It's mm. not just like the, the first draft. Mm. It's actually like hardly anything. It's like a little bit of bird poop over there on the, you know, but it's just enough to have something that gives you a direction to think about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Mm. And you, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many boxes of, of drawings and pages of stuff that I write and come out when, I've, when I'm just normally just sort of sifting through this thing. Um, uh, but as I think say, it's not happening now because primarily now I'm in a teaching mode. Mm. Because I think I think there's something that's so interesting there is that we live at such a frenetic pace and we are so back to back with meetings, we're so back to back with life that we don't have that space. And so you don't, you know, a lot of people talk about you need space for creativity. You need to have your your brain needs to be able to enter a different mode than it is when it's in constant fight or flight mode. And I think what you've just described there is so important in terms of 
in a corporate sense, there's a lot being done around mindfulness about, you know, taking breaks, going for a walk. And a lot of people push up against that. Cause like, I don't have the time for that. And I think, I think the opposite is true is that you don't have the time not to do it because right. actually you're stifling the creative thought. You're stifling that ability to think through complex problems and have your subconscious be able to kick in. And I think that is one of the issues that is leading to burnout is the fact that people aren't giving themselves that space. Well, it's, you know, it's this, I think it uh, has a lot to do with both left brain and right brain. I mean, we mm. live in a culture, there's a wonderful book called The Master and His Emissary by Ian McGilchrist, mm. a Scottish uh, psychiatrist, I think. But he, he's sort of saying the right brain is actually the master and the emissary is the logical left brain that helps, helps the right brain figure out the pieces. But we have now subjugated that and have a left brain. I mean, just look at the way a corporate, most corporations are run. It is run on such strict left brain, tangible, measurable pieces. The economy is measured in terms of all these different numbers, right? So it's just sort of fascinating, the idea that we need, I think, to have more time in order to filter things into the, into the being in that right brain that puts stitches things together. Because the left brain can't stitch anything together. It's just linear and in little pieces. And if you're in a job that is just clicking along in little pieces like that, it, 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 it's like, well, in the end, you burn out because you haven't got perspective. Mm. The left brain can't give you perspective. The left brain is very tied up with your ego and the ego and all these different pieces. And the, the right brain is that more sort of transcendental kind of backdrop to things. It, I mean, it can be very specific and come up with very specific ideas that the left brain can then say, wow, that's smart. Let me see if that's possible. Mm. But if that piece doesn't come to you, the left brain's not going to figure it out. Yeah. And is there any, any kind of top tips for people who um, may be stuck in that left brain side to kind of get into that right brain? Do you have any kind of top tips from your reading or experiences or even from meditation or anything like that? Well, I mean, I practice a specific meditation technique, transcendental meditation. And I, so that I did that and I think it's fantastic. And there's been all kinds of research, you know, brain research done on it. But um, See, I, the thing is, my course, when I teach the courses, people come into the problem of drawing and painting in a left brain way. Mm. And my courses are actually pulling them out of that and thinking in terms of structure and values and shapes mm. and, and starting to think more in terms of what the right brain way of looking at art is. And after you know two, three weeks, they say, I see what you mean. I'm seeing in shapes. I see the masses now. And it's just because you're giving them pieces to practice to go and do that. And so I think, I mean, there must, I mean, there must be all manner of ways of just taking some practice that allows you to move into that arena, even if it's, even if that arena isn't particularly productive, mm. like, oh, I'm such a great drawer now but you're starting to see it more and more like, oh, I, that's helping me. I wish I, I mean, 
I'd suggest learning to meditate, but I mean, that word is so big and, and broad and what does it mean? And most people say, oh, I have too many thoughts and I can't meditate. So it's sort of like, so, I mean, there's so many, um, I, you know, I wish I, I wish I could just had this great, I mean, if they want to learn to draw, take my drawing course. I, missed it, it, I was going to say it. I was like, you're totally missing the opportunity here to say, do you want to get in your right brain? Come on my course. Oh yeah, That's yeah. All sorry, we sorry, sorry, There listen. we go. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give everybody the information about your course at the end, but that's, yeah, I think, I think that's sort of that meditating, but actually what I love is the fact that I know, I know it's an advertisement for your course, but that idea of doing something totally different and seeing things in a different perspective and learning things that it's just using your brain in a completely different way. And whenever you do that, that's going to open up your right brain and that's going to help you to do, see other problems differently. And so right. if it's not your course, it's something else, just do something creative that allows right. you to see the world in a little bit of a different way. And I think very much of it is like, like, let's say you say, well, I want to learn to write poetry. Your poetry may always be dreadful. Yeah, but you'd be thinking of words in a different way and metaphors and, and uh, analogies and things or or just learning to play guitar or, or taking singing lessons. It's not that you're getting good. It's that you're just removing yourself from the world that holds you yes. and explores an arena that does demand in order to do it well, a right brain way of thinking, mm. a right brain way of seeing things. And as long as that thing, you know, you practice it every day and you take a lesson once a week or something, if it keeps like jogging you out into this other thing, then that thing itself, I think, because you hear about this all the time. People that are really successful have some kind of hobby on the side. Yep. On the side. And yep. they do it and they do it well and they're dedicated to it and they may not be any good at it, but it's it doesn't matter because that's not why they're doing it. It's like your CEO taking a pottery course and every Christmas you get this horrendous piece of pottery and you're like, wow, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, we, we still have one of those for my daughter out front of the house. Out in front of the house. <laughs> I shattered mine. It's a complete, I'll have to tell you that story another time, but I made one for my mom talking about it for weeks and the handles broke right outside oh. of our door and it shattered oh. on the ground. I still remember it. And this is when I was 10 years old. <laughs> So Ian, I am, I'm so sad to say that our time is, is coming to a close and I have to ask you our two final questions that we ask all of our guests. So the first question is, um, along this journey, what have you discovered about yourself? So I think the thing that has happened to me and since, since this course, this course that I started taught, teaching five months ago, uh, in many ways pushed me in a way I'd never been pushed before because there were so many, hundreds of people wanting attention and so on like that. And these live calls and videos and all these different things. And I think the thing that I discovered is when I've been pushed into a situation that I need something, my mind always comes up with the piece I need when I need it and I can give it to them. Mm. And I feel, I feel blessed that way. I don't, know if, I don't know if everybody feels that way. I don't know if everybody feels that way when they're sort of pushed in there, but I just feel like, oh, I get the right little nugget and that's the kernel of it. And I can flesh that out. And I realize that I'm giving them 
it's not about not it's not about information i'm giving them an emotional connection to me and to the whole idea of becoming an artist that just i get this idea i give it to them and i because i've got eight i had 800 people over 800 people in my drawing course and i can't tell you the number of people that said how personal they felt the whole course was wow and I, and I think, well, and I had like 75% of the people sign up for the next course. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was clearly something. And I just feel that I've, I've discovered that in myself, that when I need something for that connective tissue of what we're doing here together, it, it comes. When I need it, not before, just in the nick of time, perhaps, <laughs> but it's there. <laughs> And it's sort of trusting that instinct, you know, that's the, the, the word a lot of people use is instinct for that. And it's sort of, it's trusting yourself that when the word comes, use the word, or when the idea comes, use the idea. And sometimes it's just what the other person needs in that moment. And that's yeah. really important to, to draw out. And I think it has to do with being in your calling, mm. right? If you're out of your calling, I would see it maybe happening less often, but when you're mm -hmm. feeling aligned with what you're doing, then you're aligned not just with what you're doing, with what, but all the stuff behind you, meaning everything of, of the universe, and it's all flowing in one big line, I think. Interesting. Very interesting. All right. Final question. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? So, uh, I think it's this very, very wise man that I knew when I was in my 20s. I was asking him something about something that I wanted. And he said, don't always go for 100% fulfillment. 60, 70% may be okay. Mm. And there's a certain realization in that in terms of you know, no matter what your, your career, your marriage, your kids, you know, there's, you know, there's nothing you can look at, generally speaking, in life that's perfect. Um, but if you're getting 60, 70%, it's like, well, just relax, pal, because, you know, and it just stopped the certain striving for things that maybe are unattainable. Yeah. That doesn't seem maybe very inspiring, but it, it maybe, you know, you think the idea like, oh, you should always be striving, don't settle head for it. But I would say I've, I've lived a good part of my life making very clear decisions about what I want mm. and I've lived by them. But there may also be, even though I'm doing that, um, impractical things like the scale of the galleries I want to be in and, and how much I want the paintings to sell for. And those are things that are out of my control. And so maybe sort of striving for a hundred percent, because I, I strived for that stuff for a while. Mm. I can tell you. And um, I think I've sort of learned to take that and, and just apply it to everything that's going on. And, you know, we talk about kind of perfectionism being the death of many things. And I think this is a perfect example of putting that into practice is if you're striving for 100%, if you're striving for perfection, you're never going to be satisfied. And so 
you know, if, if you want to live your life that way, if for you, your motivation is never being satisfied and actually that's what drives you and that's your driver. And that's your calling is to never, to never give up and to keep going and to always strive, always strive. But actually if you're doing that and you're very much feeling that tension of not feeling fulfilled, not feeling that happiness, not feeling that joy, take a step back and just say, you know what, this is good enough. This is good enough. And we talk about that in so many of my coaching sessions actually revolve around this. It's people that have a perfectionist tendency and they constantly feel like they are not good enough. And so we have to explore for them, well, what is good enough and what is good enough in other people? And why is that not good enough for you? Right. And it's one of those things to sit back and actually, I think it's, I think it's profound. You know, I, I, I think it's inspiring and I think it's profound is think about what percentage for you is good enough and have you attained that? And can you be happy with that? Right. Yeah. Because I mean, there might be for some people, a hundred percent, they're playing Carnegie Hall. That's what they wanted. And it, they just, the, the, the crowds are going crazy and it's a hundred percent. But I mean, most of us don't have that experience and you might have, you know, a marriage that it's 90% and your kids, you know, okay, they're like right now they're teenagers. So that it's like, you know, 70% and my career is like, you know, 60%, but they, you know, it's not like just there, mm. but just like you're saying, where are these different places where it's okay? Mm. It's good enough. And the thing that always happens is you play Carnegie Hall and then you want the next thing. Like you want the Sydney Opera House or you want, you know, it's, there's always something else and there's always somebody better, bigger, smarter, prettier, more successful, better artist, better singer, whatever it is, there's always something that's better. And if you're considered the top, I love, I love Simon Sinek always says, you know, somebody was, he was chatting with somebody and said, oh, well, we're the number one podcast. And he says, for now. Yeah. I loved that. And I was like, that is just it. Because it is like, for now you are. And then also, what are you ultimately going to give up what are you ultimately going to do to stay in that position? Because at some point it's going to start slipping from you. And so what are you doing? And I, I just, I think, I think that is a great piece of advice. And I think I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to take that one and stick it up on the wall. Definitely. Well, Ian, this has been absolutely beyond a pleasure. I've, I've loved where we've gone with this. I love the, um, the book suggestions as well. I'll be getting those. And for people who want to come on your course, so they want to get into that right brain and they are interested in, in flexing that muscle, where can they find your courses? So the easiest thing to do is to go uh, to ianroberts.com. And on the right-hand side, there's just a button you click and you get on my email list, which means that once a month, you get my YouTube video about certain aspect of painting, compositional structure, something like that. And then when I offer the courses again, um, then there'll be announcements and videos about it and you'll be able to sign up if it interests you. So those YouTube videos are all free? Yeah, the, well, I have to find somebody because I was just making them week after week after week, right? And they're just <laughs> jumbled out there. And it's like, but I'm going to find some people, maybe a couple of my students to go in and kind of organize it so that it's like something that's more functional. Okay. But they're all there. They're all free. Fabulous. All right. And, <laughs> and for anybody who is in the UK, Ian is spelled I-A-N. So I-A-N Roberts com. So it's been an absolute pleasure. And um, I will, I think I might have to sign up for some of these art classes. It's always something I, I'm the, I can't draw a stickman person. So I need to, I need to get on this. 
I'll show you some before and after drawings and it'll convince you it's worth it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it really was a pleasure, Kimberly. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Ian. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Join us next time when I speak to professional drummer Chris Farr all about being a dream catcher. If something in this has resonated with you and you'd like to reach out for executive coaching, why don't you get in touch? Check out my website, kljconsulting.co.uk or you can email me on the Undiscovered You podcast at gmail.com. We're also going to be having a retreat in June this year. So if you'd like to get away and reconnect with your calling, please do get in touch and find out more about that. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support me in putting more content out there, why not buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com forward slash undiscovered you. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, like, and comment below. And I hope that you're one step closer to discovering the undiscovered you. Mm-hmm.